This is this is fine. This is fine. This is, this is fine. fine. This is fine. <laughs> this is fine. This is a poor substitute for therapy, but an excellent substitute for other podcasts. We're not like other podcasts. Join us as we find the answers to the universe's biggest questions like is butter a carb? Does crying burn calories? And what the fuck am I doing with my life? We're here to be your part-time therapist, astrologer, concierge doctor, and fairy godmother. Do you need someone to validate you today? Cool, cool, cool. Come on in. We're fine. This is fine. Hello, BBs. Welcome back to our second half of our interview with brilliant physician, surgeon, and hormone expert, Dr. Catherine Marshall, MD, board-certified OBGYN. Dr. Marshall is known for her laparoscopic surgery skills and is a member of the Scripps Minimally Invasive Robotic Surgery Program. She joined us for episode 21 to debrief us on all things hormones. So if you want that foundation before you get into today's content, definitely go back and listen to that one. When you pause this episode, don't forget to subscribe on your way over to episode 21. Thank you. Okay, we're back today to talk about a number of women's health topics, specifically your hormonal health with questions submitted by This Is Fine listeners. Listeners, they're just like us. But seriously, thank you to everyone who submitted your questions on Instagram via text. So happy you are part of this community. We're getting into hormonal birth control, treatment of different hormonal imbalances, cycle syncing workouts, fertility, and postpartum changes. Dr. Marshall, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around here for part two of this women's health series. Again, how are you feeling? Are you fine? (laughs) Totally fine. Totally fine. Super fine. Let's just jump right back into it, shall we? Sure. Okay. So we just talked last episode a bit about birth control. And this might be a touchy subject for someone who does prescribe birth control. But some of our listeners, one listener in particular, asked, why do most OBGYNs prescribe birth control? as a first response to PCOS and other hormonal conditions instead of finding another solution? It's a great question. Yeah, someone's thinking. (laughs) Yeah, someone's thinking, exactly. You know, so for PCOS, the big deal with it is too much testosterone and irregular cycles, and the pill uh, is perfect at at making that handle both, yeah, it absolutely handles both, and puts your ovaries on ice, saves saves them up for the future, and so it's it's a great choice because it will immediately clear up acne for people, will immediately help with irregular cycles. It's not fun to have irregular cycles. Right. A lot of times they're heavier when they come. Painful. They're pa- more painful when they come. Um, you're also always wondering if you're pregnant or not and things like that. So, you know, the invention of the pill, you know, really one of the most wonderful things of, of you know, the 20th century. So, um, So yeah. it's an immediate solution to a lot of symptoms. Yes. Do we know... What causes PCOS in individuals? Like, is there a way to target that root concurrently while also immediately treating the symptoms? Yeah. So we we don't know for sure what causes it. So we, that's probably a big reason why that's we reach for the solution. Big reason okay. why we reach for the solution. There are non-birth control pill solutions. And, you know, going back to, you know, what we kind of know about the PCO, circling back to that insulin. There's definitely a link with obesity, having a high processed food diet, lots of carbohydrates, high fructose corn syrup, these sorts of things 
can start women on the road to, you know, they used to call it Syndrome X, where you keep gaining weight, you get type 2 diabetes, you get problems with your liver's um, handling of cholesterol, and, um, and you get high blood pressure, problems during pregnancy with, you know, that sort of thing, and then, you know, um, heart disease. So it's a bad syndrome. You don't want syndrome X. And so we're always trying to address that, you know, and believe it or not, thin women can go on to develop this also. 80% of women are at risk of having these kind of adverse things happen in the future. So, you know, again, lifestyle is a part of it, but, you know, I can't change the advertising industry. Right, um, or the I food can't industry. Change the food industry. <laughs> right. Although a lot of times people will come in with their Jamba juices, you know, the whole, you know, <laughs> 2,500 calories of sugary, yeah. you know, stuff um, right. and protein powder that they think is healthy and right. and whatnot and, and wonder, um, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, I like to recommend, you know, I like a book called the the Obesity Code by Jason Fung. People are upset. They're like, I'm not obese. It's like, but it explains why insulin is important for right. balancing and the you know explaining what's going on with the polycystic syndrome. And then uh, what else? So um, I prescribe metformin for a lot of women who don't want to be on the pill. Right. That is, uh, as we discussed in a previous segment, a wonder pill that basically stops us from having these huge insulin surges. And it has side effects. It you know causes bloating and diarrhea and things like that for women, especially the first week it, it's taken. Right. But it is one of these, you know, wonder drugs that, you know, that's considered anti-aging and things like that. And it turns out uh, there are also things like, you know, cancer survivors who are in metformin are less likely to have their cancers to come back and wow. things like that. Again, it has to do with the insulin. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, you know, intermittent fasting, um, breast cancer patients who intermittently fast 14 hours or, you know, what, five days a week are less likely to have their breast cancer come back. Wow. That was a study out of um, UCLA. So, you know, definitely insulin is hugely important. Okay. And when people may, you know, demonize the high fructose corn syrup and things like that, it's like a little of it's probably fine. Right, of course. Um, the balance. But it's all about, you know, the glycemic index and what's happening with the insulin. Yeah, making sure that healthy choices are the bulk of your choices while still indulging and living a little bit, I think. And then to digress, you know, know, we talk about, you know, GI health and having the right kind of bacteria in your intestines. Mm -hmm. And things like high fructose corn syrup actually pass into your colon. That's not good for what's yeah, growing there. Yeah. And it's also um, why we think there's such an explosion of colon cancer in our 40-year-olds and wow. whatnot has to do with um, that's that that sugar is supposed to be absorbed in the stomach and in the upper GI. And it's but not. Because it's such in such high quantities and um, so potent, it's it's detected in the colon, which is it's not supposed to be there. Wow. Yeah, the food here, this is another rant for another day for me, but yeah, the the food that is available to most people in the U.S. is uh, not the most optimal for our health. <laughs> well, and then this the uh, portions are portions. absolutely wrong. And yeah. yeah, things that are advertised to us. Um, it's interesting just seeing, you know, different approaches to food while traveling has kind of opened me up and made me think differently about my diet. And uh, 
Yeah, if I'm going to have a treat, like soda, I'm not a soda person, but I love Mexican Coke, and I was trying to figure out why I like it so much. And it's actual, like, cane sugar versus the high fructose corn syrup, right. so I feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> but, yeah. Sure. A special thing, but a right. daily thing, yeah. you know. Exactly. That's so hard on your body. Not and so good. So, in yeah. general, obviously, like, lifestyle changes are going to help target the root. I also wanted to bring up, I didn't know if this was like medically accepted, but I got a 23andMe result on my health panel that said you're very oh, likely to have PCOS. Interesting. Which to me indicates like, oh, maybe it's just a genetic thing. Well, Is that something you're familiar with? Yeah. I mean, that's really, really interesting. Right? It didn't say anything like no, nothing for diabetes, like totally normal and like other. Like, I med- wonder what gene it was they were. I know. I'm really now curious I, too. Now I now I want to see that. Maybe because, I can bring it up. Uh, there's definitely been very interesting data looking at, you know, sort of metagenetics, like what kind of environment did you um you know, come to be in, in your mother's womb. Oh, like is that epigenetics as yes, well? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <sighs> I can't believe I just said it. No, no. Well, you actually yeah. taught me the word epigenetics, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is why I was like, wait. Yeah. <laughs> I need coffee. Uh, you're right. It's epigenetics. And so the idea is that, for example, if the father smoked when, you know, that sperm fertilized the egg, there's wow. like more endometriosis. And Whoa. if the mom had a lot of Cheerios when she was pregnant with you and not apples, you know, then yeah. you're more likely to have PCO if your mom had this. So it has, there's a, there's a thought to be a link about that as well. Well, we certainly, a lot of times when women have like more hair, you know, or make more cysts, we'll say like, well, you know, how about in your, you know, is it in your family? And a lot of women like Mediterranean and whatnot are ah. going to have sort of more, oily skin, more, okay. you know, more hair growth. You know, there's there's sort of subtle genetic differences. Right. You know. This is so interesting. Yeah. And the whole epigenetics thing is fascinating, but that would make me think it would lead to a specific gene that 23andMe was talking about. And they didn't. They're like, we're looking at a whole bunch of things. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah I don't, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. I don't, I'm no, not familiar I, with I that. I fully just put you on the spot with brand yeah. new information yeah. that isn't like <laughs> widely accepted by the medical community, just purely out of curiosity. It was interesting that I saw, because almost everything it said was pretty spot on, except for the fact that it's like 80% likely I'm a ginger. I do have red in my hair, but uh-huh. <laughs> it, said, it was like you 80. You must have Neanderthal. Uh, yeah, I like genes. got a tiny bit in yeah. there, but also like very... Very Irish. Um, so. Well, and did you see the Nobel Prize is just this um, paleo geneticist who's found a whole nother, you know, race besides Neanderthal that oh, we I have think the I genes did see of. It's really That's so cool. Yeah, this is the Wild West of genetics now. It's oh. very a very interesting time for cancer, for yeah. for everything. So much amazing changes and yeah. developments. Yeah, exactly. So cool. And I love how we got here from like prescribing birth control. <laughs> <laughs> is birth control also prescribed kind of off the bat for endometriosis? Yes. Okay. Yes. Same kind of thought process. Like we don't really know what's causing it. We have to target immediate symptoms to get you relief. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and that makes also, sense. Um, there are studies that show that um, there's less progression of the endometriosis on the hormonal birth control. The drosperinone ones are really wonderful for, for endometriosis. For targeting this. Yeah. Okay. So I think some people like might come to this kind of question with a frustration, like, why is my doctor just giving me a pill instead of figuring out how to like undo the problem, right? What do you say to patients who come to you with that kind of mindset? 
it's hard to develop credibility with someone when you don't have that much FaceTime with them to right. explain things. And that's what you said in our last episode, yeah. that you only get a short period of time with your patients when you wish you could spend like an hour with each one. I once got this review. They were so upset that I gave them birth control pills. It was someone with oligomenorrhea. Okay. And I had samples and I gave them, you know, and, I, and then I prescribed it. And, right. and I wanted them to do it for a couple of months sort Test of to out. reset. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times... That's you know a trick you can do that will reset things, and then oh. people can get pregnant and like jumper cables for your ovaries. <laughs> and my review was like, she gave she's such a terrible doctor. She gave us birth control pills, and then the next time we had an ultrasound, we were pregnant. What a terrible doctor! <laughs> it was like oh, no. you know like we went off this terrible medicine after two months, and then she was pregnant. And it was like You're like that I, was the plan. I did my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a really tough thing for especially I would say in like our medical system with insurance and everything for doctors to be able to spend quality time developing relationships with their patients. Yeah. Um, you're you're kind of cornered in a way, aren't you? Yeah. 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 So is there a way for you to prescribe this medicine while a patient can also start to explore like root causes? Yeah. I mean, I try to give my patients some information about PCO when we come up with a diagnosis because yep. a lot of people are relieved to have a diagnosis. Some right. people are really really upset. And, you know, that goes with a lot of, you know, conditions right. in, in, the the, diagnosis in the gynecology can, office. It feels validating to have some kind of answer and like, oh, I'm not crazy. This isn't in my head. Like, this is a real thing. But yeah. at the same time, there's like a gravity to having that label as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, to to, to know that you have to be more careful about your blood pressure mm-hmm. and, and things like that the rest of your the rest of your days if you've got this diagnosis is is heavy for people you know so it you know again i try to give handouts to be or basically through our electronic medical record it'll be something they can see on their interface um, but it's it's really difficult to to cover ovarian physiology in a 15 minute <laughs> visit <laughs> right right but right. what i can tell patients is that you know the pill it, like i said if i uh, before if i was the you know uh, surgeon general i would recommend that all women no matter where they are that they use the birth control pill for a couple of years just because of the beneficial effects um and you can get that from short term use even well, the 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 best data showing that it halves the rates of ovarian cancer and uterine cancer is two years. So, so you can cut your cancer risk in half with two years of birth control. Correct. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's a really big pro. Are there cons? Are there long term negative effects of taking birth control? Well, you know, they're all they're um, you know, there's always there's no free ride. <laughs> Any pharmaceutical is going to have risks and benefits. Right. Um, uh, some women will have, you know, a bad reaction to one pill versus another, more emotional issues with one versus another. And, you know, we divide almost all the, you know, there's some newer pills that have um, different a different estrogen than the ethanyl estradiol, but um, most of the combination birth control pills have ethanyl estradiol, okay. same estrogen, and then different progestins. And the different progestins can have different side effects. Some of them will cause a little more acne. Some of them will be completely anti-acne. Okay. You know, the one that causes a little more acne, there's like almost no spotting on the pill. Um, okay. And then ones that don't have that, 
you know, benefit. Maybe there's spotting and okay. less acne and, okay. and thing, you know, little trade-offs. This is where the nuance comes in. Yes. Okay. So if you hate the pill you were given, please don't write it off and say, this is hopeless. No pill will ever work for me because right. there are literally like 20 or 30 that are commercially available that are distinct from each other. Wow. And I'm glad you brought that up because a few episodes back, we talked about antidepressants and how when people are going on a mental, um, you know, mental health medical journey, mm -hmm. finding the pill that works for you is also very difficult. And a lot of patients get really discouraged in that first six weeks to six months if something is not working and then they have to try something else. I feel like there are some similarities here where you really do have to figure out what works for your body through a bit of trial and error. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to hack your body and yeah. figure out what works. I mean, uh, there's been hope of, you know, genetic tests to figure out which antidepressant will work best for which person and things like that. I wish we had that kind of technology. We do a pretty good job guessing most of the time. Most women like the the prescription they've been given for birth control right. and will continue it and will do so safely and happily. And as soon as they stop taking it, if they want to get pregnant, they'll get, if they're at a reasonable age, they will get pregnant. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up reasonable age. One of our listeners said, is geriatric pregnancy really 35? Uh, yeah, that's such an ugly name. It's isn't such it? a sad yeah. name. Like yeah. 35 is so young. Yeah, but there are, there are, you know, metabolic changes. There's aging okay. of our cells. Your immune system has changed as well. And so when you are uh, 35 and trying to conceive, the enzymes that recharge, you know, the vitamins that recharge enzymes and things like that, they're, they're not at the same level as when you were 21. So there are numerous studies that show like folic acid requirements when you're under 35, when you're in your 20s are 800 micrograms. Okay. And when you're 35 plus, if you're only on that amount, you're going to have a higher rate of birth defects. Wow. Um, okay. But if you take three or five times that dose, then you can bring that level of birth defect down, heart defects, spina bifida, cleft palate. So, you know, just that alone to understand that there are changes in your body, you're more likely to have problems with high blood pressure. You're more likely to have immune problems at the end of pregnancy issues where you reject the pregnancy. So it's high risk. So that's the way they call it a high risk pregnancy. Okay. I don't think... No one uses that term anymore. Geriatric. Because, <laughs> just because it's, um, we call it advanced maternal age, just because, you know, it sounds pejorative. Um, it and, really does. And really, it's becoming more and more of a norm to have your kids later in life. Right. So, so have you seen that just within your practice, that your patients are older and older as they're conceiving? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And still things are going well. It's like normal. <laughs> well, it's a difficult um, conversation to have to say, you know, um, some people are going to have an easier time getting pregnant um, right. when they're older, and um, some people aren't going to have an easy time. As I said, having the polycystic ovary syndrome has a, um, a nice side effect if you're not spending all your eggs at once, which right. is good. Your internal um, egg freezer. <laughs> right. Turns out women who've been on the pill also have a pretty easy time conceiving as well. They're okay. Uh, their ovaries sort of been hibernating. They do lose uh, follicles 
They have what's called follicular atresia, but there's not the scar tissue that occurs from ovulation. When we when we ovulate, we make a cyst on our ovary. Um, you know that's that's painful for for quite a few women. Um, you know, basically when that bursts, it's sort of like you've had a blister on your ovary and it's so sort of inflamed and injured the next month when there's a contest to see which which ovary has the, you know, the dominant egg. <laughs> the golden the egg. Highlander, <laughs> yeah. yes. So there will only be one. Yeah. It won't be the one where there was just an ovulation usually because uh-huh. there's so much inflammation and whatnot. So, oh, so that's why it alternates. That's why it alternates. Okay. And, and that's why um, we like the pill for endometriosis is if you can sort of, you know, calm that down. That, that inflammation. That releasing of the eggs, that inflammation, that can that can be quite helpful. So circling back, we kind of, I, I got us a little bit off track with the geriatric pregnancy, mm. but kind of coming back to those long-term side effects of being, let's say someone is on the pill for 10 plus years. Do we have any more information now versus 10, 20 years ago about what those long-term effects could possibly be? In general, I think the the feeling is that it's very safe to be on the pill for 10 years okay. um, for contraception. The association with a breast cancer is there, um, particularly the, the older you are when you're on a hormonal medication okay. of any type. So potentially higher risk if you're on long-term for breast cancer. Yes, yeah. Okay. So that's another reason why I encourage my patients in their 30s to think about vacation. Yeah. <laughs> vacation from vacation. the hormones. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what hormone it is, if it's Depo-Provera or Mirena, they, okay. they're all associated with... with a similar risk. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that's for long-term or in general? Yes, uh, long-term and also at certain, you know, at, at, at a certain age. Um, it is a risk factor for estrogen-sensitive breast cancers. That's good yeah. to know, especially yeah. for any women listening in their 30s. Yeah. Talk to your doctor. Now, we have very low-dose pills and much lower than they used to be when they first came out. And so okay. that risk is smaller than it used to be. But there is still a risk okay. for any hormones that you're using when you're in your, you know, especially late 30s and 40s. Okay. What else? Um, blood clots are an issue with con- with um, combination birth control pills. Right. So it's important to be aware if you've got a family history of strokes, right? Uh, blood Migraines clots with your- aura. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> that you have to, but. That being said, some women will do much better on the pill, will have fewer migraines with aura on a low-dose birth control pill. So you, it's all sort of a risk-benefit uh, analysis. You know, my um, my feeling is if you really need it for contraception, then that's great. But if you don't need it for contraception, then, you know, it might, if you've got, if you're someone with migraines and whatnot. Right. Uh, Look for alternatives. Exactly. Okay. So moving toward... Our cycles, exercise. I got questions from listeners about the impact of these hormonal fluctuations on our muscles, working out. Specifically, one listener shared that she has had patellar tendonitis and muscular breakdown in her knee, uh, the tissues around her knee, due to menstrual phase exercise. Do you have some intel on that? That may absolutely be a thing because yeah. as we discussed earlier, when your hormones are, you know, cratered, cratered, 
that there's sort of less juiciness to to all of your organs, all all uh-huh. of your um, your knees and um, joints, joints, and exactly. So, and then you know, I've also had um, a patient come to me and say um, her TMJ was really bad. Um, in that menstrual phase, and that, um, and then when she had surgery, her um, surgeon said it was the pill that was her low dose pill that was associated with, because there was low levels of her natural estradiol. Wow. That that joint was sort of not getting like the blood flow it needed, sort of more avascular and things like that. So wow. it's like it's complicated. There's a certain level of hormones that are sort of make things sort of juicy and work well. And then mm-hmm. uh, the very low-dose birth control pills, um, yes, they they can um, sort of dry things up. Some women okay. on very low-dose birth control pills can have even sort of vaginal dryness and other symptoms like that. So we're looking at a safer pill for cancer risk and for stroke risk and things like that, but they can have you know, side effects. Impact your muscles, perhaps. It, yes. And uh, as we discussed before, the oral contraceptives, actually all the hormones, but especially the oral contraceptives, will stimulate the liver to make something called sex hormone binding globulin because the liver gets the medication and says, oh my God, I'm being poisoned. <laughs> and sex hormone binding globulin loves testosterone like 10 times more than estrogen. And so it really will bind up all of your testosterone. And that can cause changes in your brain testosterone and in your muscle testosterone. And Whoa. so that can change, you know, the obviously we think muscle peak muscle mass can be different. But this is not, you know, women aren't terribly muscular um, <laughs> compared to men. Right. And I think that... Um, these are very subtle differences, um, and they would not keep me from recommending the pill to an athlete okay. or to someone you know working out. On the other hand, if you're a bodybuilder and you're hitting a wall and you're on the pill, then you know maybe a pill vacation might right. be helpful. Okay, um, you know, and some purists don't want to be on any hormones at all, so that they experience the natural testosterone in their body their whole life. And that's absolutely, you know, acceptable, uh, you know, choice as well. Um, so if you're, if you're someone who, you know, gets a recommendation for the pill and, and you, you know, really don't want it for those reasons, there's certainly other ways to handle PCO sim- symptoms. We talked right. about the metformin. We talked about, um, you know, seeing a dermatologist. Um, there's um, another medication called spironolactone, which can right. definitely um, inhibit uh, androgens in the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it messes up the cycle. So, right. it's it's there's there's always going to be a side effect. <laughs> so, for the people who, whether or not they're on any kind of like hormonal contraceptive, let's say they are trying to cycle sync their workouts because they have had this kind of I don't know if it's muscular atrophy or muscular damage from doing a certain type of exercise on the wrong phase of their cycle. I don't know if that's from like the drop-off right before menstruation starts. I've seen 
you know, the videos on social media about cycle thinking. I've heard more and more about it just in the general media where essentially you do a certain level of intensity based on your follicular phase, your ovulation, your menstrual phase, and I'm missing one. I love it. I think that's really cool, actually. Yeah. I think that's a great body hack, you right? know. Uh, you know, if you're very attuned to your exercise, I think exercise when you're on your cycle and when you're in your luteal PMS phase right. is very important for mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to always need to take a run away, you know, yeah. at the start of a cycle. Okay. So, but to run a marathon, that no. maybe not a great choice yeah. when you're on your cycle. So the cycle syncing essentially says to do more gentle workouts like yoga, long walks with your dog or by yourself with your girlfriends, a, kind of a, a lower key workout versus the high intensity that I believe, and I could be getting this wrong, would be done a, around ovulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. That abso- that probably is a great idea. Okay. <laughs> um, our immune system is lower when we're on our cycle and, you know, women do tend to sort of, you know, catch colds and things like that more okay. easily around that time when, again, estrogen is important for our immune system too. Okay. Um, so the idea of not sort of doing exercise bulimia when you're on your period is great, is a good one, yeah, I think. Totally. You don't want to overdo it when your body's already having that stressor. Right. So I, I think that's probably a great idea. Cool. That being said, you know, I'll say personally, I you know, sometimes you do just need to, you know, get on the bike and sweat it out right. when you're starting that part of your cycle psychologically. Right. Cycle on your cycle. <laughs> no, I love this because it is kind of a fringe concept right now. And the fact that you can look at this with your medical background and say, that, yeah, that's pretty cool. Love that. Okay. So let's move on to another listener's question. She is wondering, is there anything about pregnancy or postpartum when it comes to mental changes that people don't talk about or women should know more about? Do you have any intel on the mental health, emotional health, ups, downs that we're not discussing more commonly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a postpartum is harder than pregnancy for sure. Okay. I think the lack of sleep definitely can tip people into, uh, you know, adverse, you know, mental states for sure. We don't talk about how difficult breastfeeding is um, and and, and really how important that is um, to, um, to try to do. What else do we not talk about postpartum? Well, I mean, it's good we're talking about the postpartum depression more. Right. It's it's a real thing. Much more popular conversation yes, now. And it's it's more important to have the mom on her medications and the baby on formula if necessary right. than than to, you know, to to have people at their wits end. Right. Really depressed. Yeah. Right, right, right. The other thing that's not sort of politically correct to talk about is how our brain sort of rewires when we have a baby, how we joke about it, you know, the working moms at the hospital, oh, I have beta brain, you know, can't remember, you know, words or you, your brain just oh, sort of... Like um, aphasia, brain fog. There is definitely a brain fog that wow. happens okay. following childbirth. And it's supposed to happen that way. Your brain is supposed to sort of rewire so that you just completely love on this creature you created. Yeah, totally. But 
you hate to talk about it at work because <laughs> you don't want to be. Well, yeah, you're a woman in a workplace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to be top form all the time. That makes a lot of sense. But the postpartum brain fog sounds like I've never heard about it. I've heard about the postpartum depression, but the brain fog and forgetting words. I mean, that's got to feel validating to anyone listening right now who is going through it or who has gone you're through fine. it. You're fine. It's temporary. <laughs> it's temporary. Everything's <laughs> fine. Um, that also kind of reminds me, do you have to come off of your mental health medication when you are either conceiving or pregnant? Like, let's say you're on an SSRI or an NDRI. Is that something you have to stop taking? Ideally, you want to get off these medications. And there's certainly some atypical medications in seizure medications that are absolutely prohibited when you're pregnant. You should never be on them. That being said, you know, sometimes people are on these medications and extra folic acid can be helpful. Um, and actually, folic acid is super important for mental health as well. Yeah. Um, the B vitamins are, are just they're almost more effective than uh, the antidepressants um, for some people. Um, so there is study, uh, there are studies about the different medications and Prozac is probably the one that's been the most studied. And again, it's it, it has to do with the, its pros and cons. There are some adverse effects for the offspring with these medications for some people. And so it is advised to to go off of them or, you know, at least to taper down. Right, like wean off <clears throat> beforehand. Okay. Exactly. I've had hundreds of patients who remain on their medications who have perfectly fine babies. Oh, that's good and to hear. we're not trying to guilt people or anything like that. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, all the over-the-counter medication. You just you just want to stay away from, right. from just everything as as when you're pregnant. Yeah. That's good to know for anyone who does have a mental health struggle who, you know, might be a little bit afraid of this. It is part of the process and definitely something you should work with, like your mental health care provider, your obstetrician. It's not really widely discussed having to wean off of antidepressants, anxiolytics, any other kind of mental health right. medication, and then go through nine months without that medication, possibly longer, right. depending on breastfeeding and your, you know, the state of your health. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 quite a difficult thing to to address. You know, again, in an office visit, it's hard to. Address completely as well that you know. Ideally, you taper off of it, but if if it's not possible, if if you're suicidal or if you can't function at work or other, you know, in your relationship, then then you can continue it, and you have to work with your doctor on specifics about your specific medication. Right, that's so important. <clears throat> it's same, so case by case. Same thing with nursing. You know, because most of these medications can be present in breast milk as well to figure out, you know, what's right for you as far as staying on medications and choices like that. But I would say, you know, having offspring is a really amazing experience that is challenging, but worth the uncertainty. No one has any guarantees that anyone's going to have everything be perfect. And a lot of young women are on these medications. Uh, so embrace the journey. <laughs> You're fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, last question. 
This is a little bit more general about coming back to hormonal health and the things that we can do to promote better hormonal health, menstrual health. There's a lot on social media and in the media that kind of pushes to extremes. We're talking about cutting out entire food groups. And I know that lowering sugar, obviously, you know, is a big deal with in, ter in terms of insulin. But looking at these extremes where it's like, okay, I've got to cut out dairy and gluten and only eat X, Y, Z. I feel like a lot of that's coming from fear, but I would love to know your opinion on that. I'm not a, a nutritionist or a gastroenterologist. I do see patients that have this orthorexia or absolute obsession with eating correctly. I, I think that it is a, a sort of a version of obsessive compulsive disorder that feels right in the moment but can be very disruptive and is not necessarily the healthiest. Right. It's like um, extreme health isn't healthy almost, right? <laughs> nothing yeah. in excess except for moderation. Yeah. So would you say, like, I guess the antidote to that in my mind would just be doing the things that make the rest of your body healthy will in turn also make your hormones and your menstrual cycle healthier, right? Like, regular exercise, the the back to basic stuff. Like we're we're exercising but we're not doing too much. We're eating well but we're not going to extremes like orthorexia. We're focusing on sleep and self-care but not so much that it does become a compulsion. Does mm -hmm. that does that sound medically sound to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's like yeah. my general coaching advice, but I don't have that MD, so I need to make sure. <laughs> but the choir who's working hard, you know, we still need to hear these these messages like, oh, don't drink every night. Right. And don't, you know, you need to hear it from your friends. You need to right. hear it from your colleagues. You need to, you know, have the good behaviors reinforced for sure. Yeah. And, but, you know, I, I imagine you, we probably are preaching to the choir, the type of person who listens to you is <laughs> probably very mindful of their diet and things like that. Yeah, I think we're living in a good balance here. Yeah. We like Taco Bell and we like, you know, a good salad. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Oh, yeah. You know, if you want to track your carbs, I think that's not the worst idea. There, okay. You know, there are apps on the phone. Right. Um, just like you can track your cycle. But there's... Um, there are apps like Noom that you you prescribe to, or My Fitness Pal, right. which if you do not want to count calories, you can at least use it to count sort of your macros, okay. um, and that's free. Right. And I think that's really helpful to sort of you know realize where the sugars are coming in, right? Take inventory without yeah. letting it become an obsession. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Especially if you are struggling with some kind of imbalance. If you're doing okay and you're just like, oh, I just want to check in with my, you know, my yeah. hormonal health, would yeah. you also recommend like taking inventory of macros? Again, I'm sort of obsessed with insulin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think if we handle that, that the rest falls into place really well for most people. Yeah. That's the thesis statement of the day. <laughs> that is the thesis statement. And I wish that we, I wish that that was emphasized in college and high school right. and, and whatnot. Such a good point. I mean, with, you know, 50% of the population going to need insulin, you know, soon we should understand that uh, wow. hormone yeah. the best. Okay. Well, good to know <laughs> on the hormone talk, we didn't think we were going to be talking about insulin, but here we and are. I'm not, I'm not an endocrinologist, yeah. you know, so. Um, but this is part of your field. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Massively. Um, Dr. Marshall, again, thank you so much. This is so educational and you are providing what we didn't get in school for free. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. 
Okay, sweet angel listeners, mommy loves you. Go schedule your annual check-in with your gyno and then go treat yourself for taking steps toward handling your health. You're a rock star. If you loved today's episode, please share it with a friend who can benefit from this information. Don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Subscribe to get the latest episodes. And if you're feeling extra committed, find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisisfinepodcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of This Is Fine. I've been your host, Dominique Michelle Astorino. We're based in San Diego, recording in studio at DLI Productions in Pacific Beach with Emmy Award-winning sound designer, Dan Dele Isla. This is a comedy and advice podcast, but for legal reasons, this entire podcast is a joke and none of it is medical advice. To download the transcript or learn more, visit thisisfinepodcast.com. <laughs>